Hello, everyone, and welcome. Thank you for listening to Then Again, the podcast of the Northeast George History Center. I am Marie Bartlett, the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center. And today I have with me Jean Harmon to talk about Edward Inman and the building of the Swan House. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for inviting me. So could you tell us a little bit about your personal history with Mr. Inman and the Swan House? Uh, personal is, is, uh, history, I've portrayed him for almost six years uh, in the Swan House, the Atlanta History Center, basically portraying him in the year 1930. I didn't like to go beyond that because he passed away in 1931. Um, he spent a lot of time uh, researching uh, himself, the, the era that he lived in, uh, in addition to you know the house, um, Atlanta, the people involved with the house, the staff, anything possible that I could to become him. In some of my early trainings, uh, my supervisor, I asked her a question. I said, well, you know, did Edward do this or did Edward do this? She goes, did who? I said, Edward. She goes, no, you, you are Edward. So for you, know, what did you do? <laughs> so that I had to really think of that as being me and uh, the house being my house, although it sounds kind of odd. And unlike a lot of places where, I mean, we had tours, scheduled tours there as well. But we were from the time we opened to the time we closed, myself and the other staff in the house were in 1930. Uh, there were no scripts that we went by. It was all basically, I guess the term that's used in interpretation is roving interpretation. And so any conversation, we had to be versed in or knowledgeable enough about not only the house, the people, but the era uh, in order to engage guests about whatever they wanted to talk about. It was, it was rather challenging, but also, uh, let's see, challenging, very fulfilling too, though. So you were essentially Mr. Inman in the Swan House at the Atlanta History Center, which is where the Swan House is being preserved to this day. And I think the Swan House is probably one of my favorite structures at the Atlanta History Center. It is just so beautiful and grand. It's quite magnificent. It has almost this like simple elegance to it. And of course, that house was built for Mr. and Mrs. Inman. And I just, it's a must visit for me when I, when I go there, just because it feels so elegant. And I feel more elegant when I walk into it. So it really feels like it transports you back in time. But then going in and meeting the historic characters that were there at that time when they decided to do that historic interpretation that way, it made it, you know, come alive in, in a certain way. So can you tell us a little bit about why did Edward and Emily want to build the Swan House and why they wanted to specifically build it in Buckhead? Like, why did they choose that site? Because it's a beautiful site. The uh, The land was actually owned by um, uh, Edward's brother-in-law, who their house is the, I guess, original part of their house is where the country club is, is almost right across the street from the History Center. It is built around the original house. Uh, in fact, the family used to have their Christmas get-togethers in what is now the country club's bar in that room. So the, the family owned that land out there, and a lot of the uh, more affluent families were moving out of Atlanta as, uh, I guess, real estate became more, they wanted to get out, away from the city, like a lot of people do now, <laughs> get out in the country. But they had this land, and the brother-in-law said, well, well you can have this, and, and build, build your land on it. Uh, so that's mainly the main reason why they selected that property, was it was family-owned and practically given to them. I mean, that sounds like a deal to me. 
Exactly. I'm, if it's what you want, where you want, go for it. <laughs> 30 or so acres out in the country. Okay. <laughs> it's also kind of funny to think of Buckhead as being the country. Yeah. Since that is a, a, a section of downtown. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and ironically, the term Buckhead, have you heard this where the name came from? I have not. Please enlighten us. There was a, it's a country store slash tavern, whatever, about where the grocery store, uh, All Food, was it Whole Foods? Is that what it is over there? It's not too far up the street from the Atlanta History Center. But it actually had a huge buck's head in the main room, and that's how the area became known as Buckhead. Huh. I mean, it's very straightforward. You know, you see, you call <laughs> Pretty straightforward. Kind of cliche, but... Interesting. I thought it would have had a, because I think of Buckhead as being, you know, kind of where like old money is very refined because that's, I mean, that's where the new governor's mansion is as well. Um, that feels like a very kind of like rough and tumble country way to get a name for a, a very affluent area. You're right. <laughs> so we, we're, we're step one. They got this beautiful patch of land apparently out in the country at the time. And then they want to build this house. So how did they decide basically the plans for the house i know that they chose they chose the architect philip trammell Schutze, and and why did they choose him specifically and what were they trying to go for when they wanted to build this house well first of all emily fell in love with different architectural styles that she saw across europe uh when they went on their honeymoon and uh it's also where she fell in love with the swans so they came back because that's, that's kind of a mixture of, of house that they wanted french english country home uh, with Italian elements thrown in. They originally hired the firm Hintz, uh, Reed Nadler, uh, which Chutsey was a junior partner in. But it was Neil Reed that started the original plans of the house. And he became deathly ill. And when he did that, all the folders and all his jobs kind of were distributed out to the junior partners. And the Inman folder ended up in Chutsey's hands. So he looked at Neil, Neil Reed's plans and he tossed everything out except for the horseshoe stairs outside the front door that go down to the fountains. That was the only thing kept from Neil Reed's plans. And then he, he met with uh, uh, mostly Emily because she knew what she wanted in the house and uh, discussions and meetings with her. And, and he, she mentioned um, houses or estates that she'd seen in Europe, which Shetsy was kind of familiar with. He did architectural studies in uh, Europe, as well as he worked in the ambulance corps during World War I. In, down around Italy. Uh, so the different uh, styles, in fact, the um, fountains out front and those stairs are an exact copy of the fountains at Villa Corsini near Rome. So he, he, he was able to take what she described, what she wanted, and what he knew and what he had studied and created a mixture of it. That's very cool because when I look at it, it, it does feel like it's a mixture of a lot of different beautiful grand uh, houses that you would you know, see in Europe, it doesn't really feel like there's one particular style that was followed, like to the letter of the law, but it's kind of nice to have that combination. Even the grounds themselves, uh, the uh, landscaping was designed by Shutsey also. And he continued designing. He was still working on that when Edward passed in 31. Yeah. So when did they begin building the house exactly? 1926. They actually moved in in 1928. All right. Also, he didn't get to enjoy the house that long. No. That's very sad. But Emily did, right? 
Yes. Yes. It was, you know, sixties before she passed away. So she's stayed there for quite a long time. So can you tell us a little bit about the Inmans themselves? So how did they get the money to build this grand estate? Kind of what was, what was their business deal and what was their influence on Atlanta? Well, the money itself came from uh, cotton, which those who were good at, at business with cotton in the South made money. That's both not only before the end of the Civil War, but afterward. There, it, instead of uh, the money wasn't in growing cotton after the war, it was in uh, selling it, buying and selling. Uh, there were two major markets for cotton in, in the country. One was in New York, which dealt with uh, futures, a lot like the modern stock market. And then the one in uh, Louisiana that dealt with the actual physical product. So the Inmans made their money in the New York market, buying the futures. You know, they, they a bid that's going to sell for this much, but actually sells for this. So they get to make that difference between the two. And they were really, really good at it. There are a lot of people that tried to be brokers that weren't good at it. I mean, cotton itself stayed, uh, it was still such a huge part of the country's economy that during World War One, Edward was actually on a, a committee uh, for the president that kept track of the cotton prices worldwide and the war's effect on them. I mean, it was, it was such a huge market. Uh, in fact, until the um, Cotton Bowl came across from, uh, you know, cotton, uh, not the Cotton Bowl, the uh, Bowl Weevil, uh, came across from uh, the Rio Grande from Mexico and started making its way across the South. That really decimated the cotton crop. But until then, it was a huge part of our country's economy. And that decimation of that crop was kind of one of, not the only, but one of the things involved with the Dust Bowl out West and even with the stock market crash. Yeah, 30s were a bad time. Yes, uh, the family continued to have a huge impact uh, on Atlanta. Edward served on uh, city council a couple of times. Uh, he was very involved with the um, Forward Atlanta program, which there's been several, I guess you could say, creations of that through the years. There's a modern one going on now, too. I can't remember exactly what they're called, but it's basically the same thing. We're trying to bring business and the economy to Atlanta. Uh, after the Civil War, a lot of big cities across the South and leaders of those cities were like, you know, I'm not going to take any northern money. You know, da, 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 da. Uh, well, Atlanta, uh, Atlanta was different. And then Edward and the leaders of the, uh, their, his parents, his, his uncles, and then he let, carried that forward, recognized that in order for Atlanta to grow after that war, you needed money regardless of who it came from. Uh, so they took northern money, no problem at all, and were called by several governors and uh, mayors across the South are being traitors because they did do that. But it really helped refuel Atlanta's economy. And it being a railroad hub before the war, of course, we all know it now is a big, huge airline hub uh, with like Hartsfield International Airport. But it is still a huge railroad uh, hub as well. A lot of the markets, uh, a lot of the goods that come in from overseas come up from Savannah in the Gulf, come up to Atlanta. They get you know flown in. They get loaded up on rail cars and distributed out through the rest of the country. So it is still a huge uh, railroad city as well. But the uh, Norfolk Southern Rail Yard uh, used to be called, I think it still carries part of the Inman name. It was called Inman Rail Yard. Now, is it true that he was also involved with streetcars as well? R racing, yes. Where Hartsfield Airport now sits, it used to be a racetrack called Candler Field. Uh, opened up in uh, 19... 1910, you know, 1909, 1910, 
And if you do some Google searches for Candler Field with photographs, you can find some of the pictures of the first two runways at Hartsfield, and the, you can see the outline of the dirt, what's now dirt, oval of the racetrack. It actually was paved a lot like the track up in Indianapolis, uh, both with brick and uh, just <laughs> rectangular slabs of rock. How a lot of the uh, downtown areas of Atlanta were paved at first. Did a lot of racing there. As a forerunner of uh, one of the things I love today is IndyCar racing open wheel here in America. Uh, the gentleman who won the first race up in Indianapolis in 1911, Ray Heron, won races here in Atlanta first. Uh, but Edward uh, raced here in Atlanta. He did uh, road courses up up along the East Coast. He he would drive and he would uh, ride the um, railroad railroad cars up to like say New York or somewhere in the South. Buy a fast car and drive it all the way back to Atlanta. He did that several different times. Uh, but in fact, uh, his uh, chauffeur, Mr. Carter, was not only his chauffeur, but he was also his ride-along mechanic when he raced. Yeah, at that time, when you early started, you, you see look at some old pictures of the racing. They had two people in it. One's a ride-along mechanic. And whereas now we have an, oh, you know, an oil pump that does it manually for us or automatically for us, Mr. Carter would ride along Mr. M in a certain style of cars that needed that oil to be pumped and would be doing it manually with a, with a hand pump while Edward's driving. I didn't know that was possible. I didn't either, but. <laughs> Sounds dangerous. Yes. Luckily, Edward never wrecked. Uh, he was you know, present when others wrecked. Those things didn't have seat belts. And the seats were very uncomfortable, didn't have the shocks like we have now. So just going on a you know, bumpy road could throw you out of the seat if you're going real fast. Which it sounds like he liked to go fast. Yes. And driving the you know country roads around Atlanta at the time I say country, you know, Buckhead Roads, you know, out Peachtree or whatever, the, uh, you had to watch out for not only people, but wagons. So not everybody had cars. And random livestock stepping out on the road. So, yeah, driving fast and watching for all that as well as the potholes which they were really bad then, too, in Atlanta. Nothing much has changed. <laughs> Sounds quite like quite an obstacle course to... Yes, definitely. ...on normal roads. It might yeah. have been actually safer for him to just drive on the racetrack going in a circle where there were far less obstacles, perhaps. But <laughs> was he very successful in his racing career? Uh, he won he, one particular race. Uh, he won four years in a row. Uh, we had a couple other trophies, which are on display in, in the uh, library there at the, in the uh, Swan House. Uh, so he was successful. Unfortunately, Candler Field didn't last too long as a uh, racetrack. Kind of the, with the popularity of the track up in Indianapolis, believe it or not, it drew a lot of stuff away from Candler Field. Uh, they tried to revive it by driving. This one never really made sense to me. They raced vehicles against airplanes. Interesting. So the cars are you know, limited to the oval track that they're on, and the airplanes are going in an oval over them. But how do you know they're staying true to the circle of the track? It's just very odd to me. So they tried to, tried to do that, tried racing motorcycles, and it just did, never gained the popularity. And uh, actually went, I guess the area, went, the track all went fallow, you could say, for a few years until Atlanta started looking for a, um, a larger airport. Crop dusters were using the front and back straightaways as their the place to take off and land from. So it had a really small airfield, but they decided to uh, turn it into what we know today as Hartsfield. Now, you mentioned that Emily loved swans. 
So yes. is what, what's with the swans and the swan house and how did all of that come together? The term swan house actually came from other people outside the house, family that didn't live there, friends that came to see it. The swan itself, she fell in love with. If you're familiar with, with swans, they're rather territorial and not very nice birds if you get close to them, especially if you have to stumble onto where they have a nest. It's not pretty. But so I always used to joke that Edward would tell, you know, we just enjoy them from a distance. Because <laughs> uh, I had several people ask me, were there ever swans on the property? No. No, there was not. There are a few swans in the uh, decoration and design of the house. There's one, the back door where most people enter when they come to see the house. There's a swan, uh, metal swan in the skylight there. Uh, there's some here and there in the decorations and the, in the uh, molding and the plaster work. But there was never any, and there's two large swan tables that Emily bought after the fact during the dining room. So a lot of people go, oh, that's where the swan house came. No, she bought that after the house was built and uh, brought it in there. Those date back to, if I believe correctly, the 18th century, got them, got them in Bath, England, for about half the price of what, she, what they wanted for them. She was very good at haggling things down. She never paid full price for anything. Yes, the old saying is, you have money, you hold on to it by not spending much of it. I, yep, that is a, a, is, is a thing. <laughs> uh, if you know how, know how to make it, you also want to hold on to it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So that's very interesting because also that you say that when people come in the back door, so the way that the History Center has it routed currently, you come in the back door because it, it feels so grand still when you come in. It is a back door, uh, and, but designed to be the, the point of entry. Because if you walk in, you see the staircase in front of you curving down towards you. Exactly. So I've always thought that was supposed to be where you came in. It is. It's designed to be the way the front of the house you know, faces down, you got that grand staircase with the flowing fountains. There was never a drive there. But you have to come through the grand house and see the house first. So it's supposed to be where you come in. Yes. No, because I was mm-hmm. like, how can you get up to it? <laughs> and uh, so your cars would drive out back uh, where you come in. Again, that is the back. Vehicles would be parked out in the back and over on, across where you see those archways. And no, there's nothing in them except architectural design. <laughs> I've been asked before if those were crypts. No. <laughs> Actually, are those the family crypts? No. Uh, so it's really more just for like people on the street to like see this. Yeah. Okay. But if, if you look at it the way it was designed, if you look at the side of the house where the fountains are, if you were to come in that door or your first entryway, well, you got the bottom of the stairs right in front of you. Not very pretty aesthetically. So that's why I want everybody to come in the back, come in that hallway and see that grand staircase. I, I love a good like spiral staircase or like good floating curved staircase. And it's Swan House has, I think, one of the best. So can you tell us a little bit about Inman's legacy in Atlanta? Because aren't there several things named for him uh, in Atlanta in the family? There's a Inman Park, uh, which is another one of the large residential areas done a little bit earlier than the Buckhead area. And of course I mentioned the Inman rail yards. His, his legacy with uh, the city council is a lot. What's which, which interesting is a lot of his legacy is not, I mean, you hear about uh, other leaders of Atlanta and uh, but the Inman name, you don't really hear much of. 
his legacy is more uh, what he's remembered for and things about him is more of where Atlanta is now. It's kind of a untouchable, intangible item, but it's because of what he did that the city is the way it is now. It's um, tell you what, what you can make a difference with if you believe in something and stick to it is no matter how rough it gets or here and there. And you get, a, get another group of people around you that believe the same thing. You can bring people to Atlanta. What's the population of Atlanta now? Six, seven million. It's a lot. And when he passed, it was 350,000. Definitely grown. <laughs> so it's a whole, whole lot. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. That's quite an, a legacy that is not quite, you, you can't like, pinpoint it to him because i'm sure there's also a bunch of other factors but it's he definitely steered atlanta in the direction that it was headed towards now yeah so can you tell us a little bit about the legacy of the house itself because i think that's where perhaps a lot of his notoriety comes from nowadays and why people kind of remember him is because oh i went to the atlanta history center i saw the house and i learned about mr inman and the inman family so you can, can you tell us a little bit about the house, how it became part of, well, not really part of the museum. It became like almost the museum and then it kind of grew outward for it. But can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Emily wanted to make sure the house was preserved. Uh, she didn't want it to, to be just sold off. Uh, a lot of the homes and houses around there, uh, a lot of what you see around their house is new construction, of course, designed to look old. But a lot of the houses, I mean, she had friends who were passing away and those houses were getting sold and demolished and newer things coming up. She didn't want that to happen to her to her house. So she made arrangements with the Atlanta History Atlanta Historical Society to uh, for, for them to buy it, for them to, to, to become the ones taking care of it. And so when she passed, that she actually passed away before that was finalized. Uh, but the family went ahead and continued with that. The family did not want the house. They did not. You think of the property taxes for the place in Buckhead at that point. It was, it was not as high as they are now, no, but they were already starting to go up. And so the History Center, Historical Society took it over. It became the Atlanta History Center. All the exhibits were in that house initially until the other buildings were built. Uh, Shutzi's porcelain display, which is downstairs in the basement, was in an upstairs room, a portion of it for a while. And uh, then everything was moved across. They created the, you know, they had the archive department, the main museum building, and they were able to build the whole basement into displaying more of Shutzi's things. And that's still not all of it. <laughs> but that house really became a symbol of uh, the architecture of Atlanta. It, uh, some people incorrectly refer to it as antebellum architecture, which you know, it's not. But it became known as Shutzi's, basically his shining glory. He would go on to to design and build hundreds of more homes, not just in Atlanta, but a few outside of Atlanta, different parts of the Southeast. But the Swan House was always referred to as his pride and joy. Uh, he continued to, he even thought so himself. He came to continue to visit the house. Uh, he visited Emily often before she passed away. Uh, whenever, you know, her being in the house, she did have family come visit, but her being in the house by herself, uh, she would sometimes co contact the architectural firm and, and you'll know, say, well, Mr. Shutzi, something's wrong. You need to come check this out. Something's wrong with the house. Da, da, da. But he knows she just wanted company. So he would come in 
And just as soon as he got inside the house, of course, nothing was said about what she initially wanted fixed. It was just somebody to sit and talk and have tea and stuff with. But he uh, continued, even after she passed, he came to visit. He had birthday get-togethers at the house himself. I mean, he, he loved the house probably more than Emily did. It's like a little architectural baby. Right. Mm-hmm. That's uh, quite quite a relationship with, with the place, for sure. That is, I think you can feel that when you walk in, is that this is something special that has been preserved. Yes, definitely. And the house has gotten quite a bit of attention recently. It has starred in a few movies, one of which perhaps most famously is that it was... President Snow's mansion, Presidential Manor, in the Hunger Games franchise, and it appeared in a couple of those movies, which I believe overlapped, the filming of those movies overlapped when you were doing interpretive work there. Do you have any fun behind-the-scenes stories for us? Uh, actually, not really, because when they were filming, they only had uh, upper management there with them, uh, so we really did not get to meet any of them. Got to hear some story, you know, funny stories, one being... Forgive me, I cannot remember the young man's name, the one that played Katniss's best friend, okay. the, the brunette guy. Thank you, yes. Apparently he was over in the main building uh, looking at one of the exhibits. He was stand, I guess, standing there for a long time reading stuff, and one of the employees in the main building stopped to talk to him, answer his questions, and she had no idea, did not dawn on her who she was talking to until Katniss walked up, looked at her watch, and said, hey, we gotta go. And then she was like, O-M-G. <laughs> she just thought he was another guest. I mean, and he was. Yeah. It, it did bring a lot of people in to see the house. They wouldn't normally see the house. Uh, and then once in the house, we're able to talk to them about the family and the house in Atlanta. In fact, I remember that this one gentleman that was there with his teenage, with his wife and teenage daughter, but he and his wife were just having a blast talking to us. And he said something about, he said, I wish my, I wish my daughter would be as interested in the house as we are. And I went, she a Hunger Games fan? And he goes, yeah, why? We're standing near the front door. And I've just kind of motioned out toward the fountains. I went, this is President Snow's house in Hunger Games. He goes, what? Can you tell her that? And so he called her over and she you know, got her phone. She was like, yeah, dad. He goes, he pointed, he, he, he did it. So he pointed out the front door and he goes, anything look familiar? And she's like, just looking, her eyes got bigger and bigger, and she's like, you know, those, you know, high school girl. Ah, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Then she wanted to talk our ears off about the house, but that happened in not quite that octave. But that happened quite a lot with people that would come in. They be so interested in the movies, and then get really interested in the house. And it was a really nice way to pull more people in that wouldn't normally be there. It's a great hook. Get a get a pop culture, and then teach them history. Yes, it is. Well, that's so cool. Yep. Has there been any other, I know Atlanta has become such a big film hub. Do you know of any other movies that were filmed there? I know there's like some books that have been set there and whatnot, but they're not as popular as Hunger Games. Um, one of the, one of the series, one of the seasons of The Greatest Race, uh, Swan House was the final destination. That's where that season ended. I couldn't tell you what year. <laughs> Vampire Diaries used the Boxwood Garden once. And there was another Another one that used the uh, Boxwood Garden, cannot remember her name, but it was a movie about a, um, a Hollywood actress. Uh, and then there's another one that used the back 
dating myself here, it goes back to the 70s, early 80s, little something. Uh, just drawing a total blank. I am so sorry. <laughs> so, so can I Google real quick? <laughs> oh my gosh, what was that? I can see the two young actresses in it too, and I can't think of either one of their names. Oh no, Tatum O'Neill, that was her name. Little Darlings. Yes, that's it. Yep, they used the the back, uh, the back view and the back entryway back there for a scene in that movie. Oh, that's it says that on Wikipedia here. They passed the Swan House on their way somewhere. Oh well, that disappeared. Well, yes, but it's Little Darlings. <laughs> Anyone wants to go and watch that movie to to see parts of the Swan House featured <laughs> in it. <laughs> Is there any like final thoughts about Swan House that you wanted to share, or any other? You didn't really get a touch on that. You were like, oh, this is an important part of Swan House. One oh, kind of humorous with me talking earlier about me becoming Edward. Okay. Out here while out here in Northwest Texas while working on the interpretive stuff still, uh, working at the uh, county tag office. Okay. And this was probably about six months ago. I processed new residents coming in and they actually moved to Lubbock from uh, uh, Alpharetta, okay? So I was in there processing this stuff for them and you know, I asked what part of what part of Atlanta, uh, what part of Georgia, and they say Alpharetta. I said, oh, wow, okay, I, I lived in, you know, grew up in Atlanta and da da da. And uh, the, the guy goes, what did you do in Atlanta? I said, oh, I worked at one of the local museums there. And uh, he goes, well, what brought you out here? And I, you mentioned the, you know, the COVID thing. I kind of killed that face-to-face -face interaction at museums and everybody got laid off. And uh, yeah, short story, short story needed to come out here. And he goes, well, what did you do? What, what museum? I was like, okay. The Atlanta history center. He goes, well, what did you do there? And I said, well, actually, and the woman goes, Oh my God, you're Mr. Inman. <laughs> and he goes, she didn't say you were, she said, you are Mr. Inman. <laughs> she recognized me and everything from, I guess they had come to the museum one of the times when I was there and made such, that's what, the neat thing is to make such an impact on somebody that basically two and a half years after I was at the museum, somebody recognizes me as that person. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's really neat. And that is a wonderful note to end on and to leave a little bit of a cliffhanger for our next podcast episode, which is all about portraying historical characters and how museums use that to their benefit and therefore be sure to tune in to us next week as we talk about portraying historical characters past present we don't really do the future that's not really something that we do at the history center but uh you know we use our historical lessons to connect with things in the past and perhaps the future then again is a production of the Cottrell digital studio at the northeast georgia history center be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.